Trust, hard-earned and easily lost. A precious and all-too-rare commodity, trust is defined as the belief and confidence in the integrity, reliability and fairness of a person or organisation. So community trust in agriculture is something that affects all farmers, given that ultimately farming needs consumers who can trust the product, but also trust the people and practices behind that product. Therefore, we have this new issue known as the social license to operate. And in this episode of The Yarn, we hear from a global expert in this new challenging field for agriculture. Hello and welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. So enough from me. Let's hear from this global expert in this area of community trust or social license for agriculture, a man who spoke at the most recent Lamex conference in Perth, where I was lucky enough to catch him and asked him to introduce himself. Absolutely. I'm Charlie Arnott. I'm the CEO of the Centre for Food Integrity. We are a not-for-profit organisation, an international not-for-profit organisation, dedicated to helping the food system earn consumer trust. Now, we're getting a better sense of consumer trust, or what is now termed social licence, which is a a term we're getting used to. Um, How do you define it? Well, really, social licence is the privilege of operating with minimal formalised restrictions based on maintaining public trust. So if the public trusts us to do what's right, they won't feel the need to ask for more restrictions. And what's really interesting today is that those restrictions historically have been enforced by formal regulation or legislation, but today they can happen more quickly and just as effectively from the marketplace as well. I think the wool industry knows a little bit about what this looks like in terms of mulesing. We've been in this area for some time and I think we're here at the Lamex conference in WA where um, live export, of course, has been discussed. Um, Do you believe that live export still has a social licence? I think it's a risk today. I think it's a serious risk today. And I think one of the challenges is when something happens uh, that generates public outrage, the industry needs to be one of the first voices to be involved in that discussion. And historically, agriculture has been pretty slow to the table and pretty slow to react and engage. And generally, the response has been defensive, as opposed to saying what we saw was completely inconsistent with our expectations for the industry and inconsistent with our standards for animal well-being, inconsistent with what we expect and what we know you expect of us. So the industry needs to be much more engaged in that conversation when something happens and then really examine whether or not the practices that are taking place, whether it be mulesing, live export, etc., are still consistent with broader social expectations or are there other kinds of practices or certification programs, etc., that need to be put in place to either get them better aligned or to look for alternatives. Now, during your fascinating uh, presentation uh, that everyone's been talking about, by the way, um, you were talking about the, the malleable majority or um, perhaps the silent majority, I'm not too sure. How do you, how do you break up society? Because it's, it's a general term that um, perhaps we shouldn't be using. You can't generalise uh, an entire society. So how do, you, um, yeah, how do you define various aspects of society in this sense? Yeah, it's a really great question and a great point. And clearly from all the work, uh, marketing work that you do, you clearly understand and identify the different consumer segments that you're going to pursue for fashion or casual wear or whatever it happens to be. The same is true for social opinion on a variety of issues. So we need to think about segmenting the population in ways for those who are already ideologically or dogmatic opposed to who we are and what we do. And they may be noisy, but they tend not to have a lot of influence, as opposed to those who are truly concerned and skeptical, but could be willing to be made support 
supportive if we were to engage with them, those who are interested but not concerned, and then kind of the rest of everyone. So we need to focus on, and we can focus on, and engage with those who are concerned and skeptical, but who are willing to be engaged and shift their opinion if they're engaged in a way that, that's uh, consistent with their values. How do we know who those people are? Well, today with, with digital targeting and, and other digital kind of research tools, it's pretty easy to determine. Uh, you can use digital ethnography, you can use other kinds of hyper-targeting tools to measure who's involved in that conversation, but then more importantly, who are their influencers? So you've talked about influencing the influencers with, with uh, fashion. You need to do the exact same thing when it comes to issues. You need to identify who are the influencers for those groups of consumers who really care about issues related to animal well-being or meat quality or care the environment, whatever it happens to be, and then engage those influencers experientially, much as you do with fashion. You give them the opportunity to engage with farmers, to see what's taking place, to learn about practices, and to do so in a way that's very transparent and authentic. It's not selling, it's not marketing, it's not pitching. It's giving them the opportunity to authentically see what happens with the men and women who are committed to taking care of animals in a way that gives them permission to believe we're doing the right thing. Now, we are all I suppose as farmers and people in the industry, uh, we get personally offended when uh, we are um, targeted by animal activists that have uh, the dogmatic approach to end our industry. They don't believe that animals are, 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 should be experimented on or used for any, any, anything whatsoever. How do you speak to farmers that want to react to activists in, in, a, in a very aggressive manner particularly in the media? Well, you hit on it. It, it, it. It's understandable. It's very understandable because people have put their lifeblood into the farms and they know they're committed to doing what's right. So when someone is attacking the industry, it feels very personal and it's understandable to be defensive. What's important is to make sure that our response is strategic, not just visceral. So the activists really appeal to a fairly narrow group. And if you look at kind of the history of the animal rights movement and the animal activist movement, particularly in the States, one of the things that they did that was brilliant over time was they stopped trying to eliminate the use of animals and actually began to promote the need for responsible use and responsible care. And then they defined what that meant. And that shift from time, trying to eliminate the use of animals to trying to assure responsible care gave them a much greater foothold because that's a, that's a shared value. That's something that most consumers care about is the responsible treatment of animals. So by engaging the activists, engaging the abolitionists, all we're doing is giving them a greater platform and pouring fuel on their fire. So we need to address the issue, but we don't want to attack the activists. We need to claim the ethical high ground and demonstrate to people that they can rely on us to do what's right, and that will allow us to be more successful. So your, uh, your presentation was very much about finding shared values. What are some of the examples of the shared values um, that, that you've found um, in, in agriculture? Well, certainly you've got values like compassion, responsibility, respect, fairness, truth. Those are the kinds of things that people in agriculture will, will, will uphold as well as consumers. And those are the things that really resonate. Uh, people in agriculture traditionally have been relatively private. We don't talk a lot about who we are and what we do. We tend to shy away from self-promotion, but we need to be willing to be more transparent and to let people know that we care about the animals. We're willing to invest in protecting the environment. We work hard. We do what's right. We protect our communities. We contribute to those communities. And sharing those stories aren't being self-promotional. They're helping to earn and maintain social license because that's what people want to know. They want to know the stories of the men and women who are out there every single day caring for the animals and doing what's right. But haven't PETA and other uh, animal activists 
taken that high ground already and stolen that territory because they put themselves out as the ones that care for animals. They have, but here's a way to reposition that and to reclaim the ethical high ground. So if, if PETA or other groups have claimed that, that ground and people are raising questions, you can you can come back with something around the, along the lines of, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying and I understand your concern about animal care. What's different between us and PETA is that we're out there 365 days a year, come snow, come sleet, come rain, come, come sunshine, whatever it happens to be, we're out there making sure the animals are cared for every single day. I've dedicated my life to making sure the animals on our farm are well cared for. That's why I hope that you'll engage me in a conversation and be willing to listen to what we're talking about and the commitment we have to caring for animals. So rather than, than fighting PETA, claim the ethical high ground and say, we share one thing, and that's wanting to make sure animals are, where, are well cared for. The difference is we're actually doing that every single day. So do you think farmers should become animal welfare activists themselves? I mean, uh, we are the ones that are actually, as you say, every day looking after the welfare of animals. How is it that we've lost that term welfare? I think, I think farmers need to be uh, animal welfare activists. And I think the difference is, is, as the communication environment has changed, where people are now kind of crowdsourcing their knowledge, we need as many messengers in as many places as possible. We need as many farmers out there willing to tell their story and to share their practices as we can possibly get. But we need to do it in a way that resonates with the values of consumers, to help them understand that we're committed to doing what's right, we're caring for animals, and we're, 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 that's part of who we are as a community. But we need to be able to do that and then talk about what we do in a way that really truly resonates, sharing the stories, sharing the practices, and having animal welfare programs that demonstrate we're willing to live to standards that are acceptable to the community. So, Charlie, you've, uh, you're here at LAMX. You've been to Australia a few times. Um, it's been a pleasure to, to hear you speak a number of times, but what's your assessment of how the Australian sheep industry and, dare I say it, the wool industry is doing this? How are we uh, proactively defending our social licence? You know, I've seen a phenomenal change and improvement over the last six years. I think it was six years ago that I was at Lamex last, and the concept of social license was newer at that point in time. It wasn't as well embraced. It wasn't something that people were willing to kind of accept and support in the way that I see today. So being able to kind of step away and then come back in, it's, it's a little easier to see the change and improvement over time. People in the industry, whether you're working with it and you're battling it every single day, sometimes it's a little harder to get that perspective. Uh, but it's impressive. Uh, you know, last night when you talked about uh, some of the programs that are currently in place, uh, the relationships with the footy players and, and kind of what they're doing to promote it. It's all great stuff. It's all great work that's being done. And I don't know that that's the kind of work that would have been done six years, eight years, 10 years ago. And so the progress probably feels quite gradual to people that are in the industry and maybe not far enough fast enough. Uh, but great progress has been made. There's clearly more to be done. There will always be more to be done. But I think the industry can take great pride in what it has done and continue to move forward in that direction, really embracing hard issues like live export, like mulesing head on, and looking at how you maintain the social license or you modify the practices in such a way that they're more consistent with broad social expectations. Well, that is um, great feedback. Um, nice to hear some positive news. But how do you... Um proactively defend that and tell the great stories when there is such a gripping image, when those sheep are dying on that boat, when there is that blood that is associated with mulesing. Because whilst that image exists, 
the activists have got a strong campaign. Yeah. Well, you have to replace the image. You have to find images of your own and create images of your own to make sure that those are in place and they can be promoted just as the other images are being promoted to say, um, you know, here's why we do what we do. That fly strike is something that's a, a terrible, uh, it has a terrible impact on animal welfare. And but for these technologies, here's what would happen. So we're looking for better solutions. We continue to look for other alternatives. But until those alternatives are available to us, here's what we're going to continue to do. But it needs to be done well. And if it's not done well, the industry needs to police itself and step into those situations where things are happening that they know aren't right and be willing to enforce consequences against those who are, are, are violating the social license. Because here's the deal. Social license is a shared asset. And it takes only one bad actor to ruin the social license for the entire sector. So my social license is in your hands. Your social license is in my hands. And so collectively, we need to work to maintain that social license. That's hard sometimes because we don't want to ever speak ill of our neighbor. We're very concerned about not, not damaging and, and throwing another farmer under the bus. But we can do it in ways that don't, don't, that don't damage the reputation of others. So, for example, if there were an incident on someone's farm that was completely unacceptable that came to light, we can respond by saying what we saw there was completely unacceptable, inconsistent with industry standards, and inconsistent with industry values. We look forward to working with Farmer Jones to help him or her come back into compliance with the high standards we've established for the Australian sheep industry and with what we know consumers expect of us. So rather than simply disparaging the farmer, you can talk about what happened and the fact that that incident was unacceptable and inconsistent with values, but you're going to take corrective action to get it back in line. So you don't condone it, but you look to uh, to evolve uh, uh, that particular individual and the industry in general. So, Charlie, what sort of questions have you got uh, from farmers here today, and what what would you like to to say to the Australian um, well? The, the, the wool producers of Australia. Yeah, it's been fascinating. I've really, really enjoyed being here the last couple of days. Of course, presenting was terrific, but what I've really enjoyed is during the coffee breaks and during the tea breaks, just having a chance to visit with people and hear their questions and listen to their stories. Um, I think what I would like to encourage people to do is continue to be aware of and to embrace the concept of social license. I'm hearing that. People are raising legitimate concerns and they're concerned about what the future is or should be for things like mulesing and live export. And the industry needs to have those conversations and to have those conversations in a way that's very authentic and genuine so they can address the issue in a way that is is best for most, realizing that it might not be the best answer for everyone, but really looking at what's best for most because that social license is a shared asset. So I've been impressed with the candor and the willingness of people to have conversations about hard issues and recognize that that's a journey and it's hard to do, uh, but commend the industry for starting that journey and beginning to, con uh, to continue down that process and to earn the social license that ultimately protects the freedom to operate. Well, Charlie, we don't often get the opportunity to, to hear and speak with people of, of your standard and, um, and, and hear the, the work that you're doing and your assessment of what we're doing. Um, very much appreciate uh, your time today and uh, also your presentation at Lamex. Um, thank you very much for having a yarn with us. Great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. So that's Charlie Arnott, the Chief Executive Officer for the Centre for Food Integrity in the United States. And you can follow the centre on Facebook and Twitter, as you can with Wool Innovation. So to this point, we ask for feedback through the yarn at wool.com. And thank you to Michael, as he's emailed in and has asked us to turn up the volume and keep the volume consistent throughout each episode so he can hear it when he's out on the motorbike. So, Michael, I hope you are hearing this loud and clear through the Bluetooth helmet on your bike. 
So speaking of which, it's time for me to get on my bike. Um, from me, Murray is coming. Thank you again for having a yarn with us. And as usual, I look forward to catching you again soon. Thank you.